Welcome everybody to the Lost and Not Found podcast, a podcast which talks about true crime and unsolved mysteries. My name's Andre and I'll be your host today, and this is my co-host, Nikan. Before we get started, this podcast was made for the intention of spreading awareness and for people to listen to things to sleep. Hello, mysterious, suspicious folks. I'm Nikan, and I think this is quite the suspicious, mysterious podcast for you. Real-life people and other miscellaneous things, including swearing. 18 plus. No children. Please proceed with caution. The music used in this podcast is called Hidden Eye by ED Records. This song can be found on bensound.com. Thank you to Bensound for letting us use their music. Our first case is the mysterious disappearance of Sherry Lynn Marler. Born in 1971, this Alabamian in Greenville was kidnapped in 1984. She was estimated to be 100 to 120 pounds heavy and 160 cm tall. The details are as follows. At approximately 6.40 p.m. on June 6, 1984, 12-year-old Shirley Marler went with her uncle Raymond to a bank in Greenville, Alabama. While there, he gave her a dollar to go to a gas station and across the street. And get a soda. Harmless, right? She left the bank, went to the gas station, and was never seen again. When Raymond went to go to the station 15 minutes after, she was not there and she was reported missing. Since she she vanished, there were three different sightings of her. Each time, she was seen with an unidentified man. One witness saw her at a truck stop in Georgia. Another saw her in a mall in New Orleans. Each time she appeared upset, disheveled, or dazed. Her family believes that she was abducted, but the police have never found her, leaving her case unsolved. Even if the case isn't solved, we still have a list of suspects as we usually do. However, this case is different. The man that was seen with Sherry was described after she vanished was described as 50 years old, 5 foot 8, tall, and with a husky build. He had a weathered complexion and crow's feet around his eyes. At the first sighting, Sherry called the man BJ, and he has never been identified since. Moving to our next case, the boy in the box. Remember when I said that there were sensitive topics? This is where it begins. Don't say that you were not harmed. Warned. The boy in the box refers to a case in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This case begins when police find the body of a young boy who was found in a cardboard box in a wooded area near Philadelphia. He was estimated to be four to six years old at the time of his murder. He was three foot three feet tall, weighed about 30 pounds, had brown hair and blue eyes. At the time of discovery, technology wasn't as advanced as it is now. Therefore, they couldn't find his identity. However, scientists were able to find out his true identity. His name is Joseph Augustus Zarelli and was born on January 13, 1953. He was four when he died. As for suspects, there aren't any. Whoever committed this atrocity has yet to be found and punished, leaving this case unsolved. Alright, before we go to our third and final case, let's take a look at a different type of crime. Fellas, have you ever had that moment where your teacher asks you to read books, but you're too lazy to read? Well, you, my friend, need Audible. 
Audible is an app that has thousands of titles, each with their own unique narrator. It even includes their own originals, for example, Monsters and How to Tame Them by Kevin Hart. It's an amazing audiobook with some funny moments. I recommend you check this out instead of those boring books about plants. Use code Lost and Not Found for sixty percent off your first year. Thank you to Audible, and let's get back to the podcast. My third case is David Harry Fisher, a murderer and escapee. David was born in 1941 in Washington, D.C. In 1970, he met a 14-year-old girl named Laura Burbank. The two often talked about their love of animals. She did not know it at the time, but he was the most dangerous friend she could ever have made. According to Dr. David Smith, a psychologist, Fisher is interested in exploiting young, vulnerable girls. He will look for such targets, he will case them, and he will spend a lot of his time thinking about how he can go about overpowering them, controlling them, and using them for sexual ends. He is very interested in finding someone with whom he can carry out his fantasies with. On June 30th, 1970, Laura disappeared following a visit to the pet store. Fisher was the chief suspect in her disappearance. Warning our children not to talk to strangers is, of course, good advice. But, well, in this situation, it may not be enough. The horrifying fact is that more than 80% of all sex crimes committed against children are perpetrated by either friends and relatives. People the children know. Such was the case with Laura. She was lulled into a sense of false security by a man who claimed to share her love of animals. Fisher told Laura that he was an animal trainer. She became entranced by the thought that she might be able to learn to train animals herself. On June 29, 1970, he reportedly told Laura that he was going to start training monkeys the next day and ask her for help. She said that she would love to help. However, he said that he could not train them at the store. He would have to do it somewhere else. She said that that was fine, as long as it was not too far away. He told her that it would take a near place take place nearby. According to Detective Dick Nibble, their initial investigation revealed that Laura had been at the pet store numerous times. Fisher had made a point of befriending her. She was very interested in the animals there. He apparently took this as an open invitation to further his relationship with her. On June 30th, 1970, her parents gave her the permission to go to the pet store alone because her sister was sick and her best friend was unavailable. She left around noon and was never seen again. Shortly after 2 p.m. that afternoon, one of Laura's neighbors, riding his daughter's horse, saw Laura in a parking lot near the pet store. She told her neighbors that a friend was friend of hers was going to teach her how to train monkeys. Fifteen minutes later, when the neighbors rode by the parking lot again, she had already vanished. When she was not home by 2 p.m., her mother, Dorothy, started to worry. She had a bad feeling because Laura always came home when she said she would. Her father, Ken, was unable to sit and wait for her. He spent most of the afternoon all night driving and looking for her, only for no results. The next day, he continued searching for her. He knew something was not right. After Laura was reported missing, the police questioned Fisher, who was at home with his 16-year-old wife. She was five months pregnant at the time, and detectives told him that several witnesses had seen him talking to Laura at the store. He claimed that a lot of kids talked to him there, but did not mean that he knew them. 
He said he had never seen her and denied all knowledge of her. However, police were suspicious of him because he seemed to have no emotion at all, describing him as personalityless. However, no evidence was found to link him to with the disappearance. For two weeks, no other leads surfaced. Police did not believe she ran away and they suspected foul play. Her family, meanwhile, could do nothing but wait and wait. Dorothy recalls that it was a horrible feeling, not knowing where Laura was. She could barely sleep at night, knowing that her daughter is out there somewhere. The police got their first significant break in Laura's case when Fisher's young wife came to the station. She told them that one night he had come home and insisted that she was uh, she washed her pair of jeans. She not she noticed they were filthy. She wanted to continue reading, but he demanded her she cleaned them right away. According to Detective Nabble, Fisher was an immaculate dresser, and it was not common for him to have soiled clothing. And he was very adamant that she washed those pants immediately. Fisher's wife also told the police that two weeks after Laura went missing, she was doing the laundry when she found a pair of female underpants that she did not recognize. Police believe that Fisher either forgot that he had them or purposely took them as a souvenir of his crime. Laura's parents identified the underpants as belonging to Laura. Nearly three months later, in September 1970, a group of children playing in the woods near the Rainer Olympia Highway in Olympia, Washington, 30 miles from where Laura had been last seen, found her body in a shallow grave. It was identified as hers on September 22nd. Although her body was badly decomposed, authorities were able to determine that she had been sexually molested, then killed by a blow to her head. They soon learned that on the day of Laura's disappearance, witnesses driving near the crime scene had seen a pet store truck that Fisher had access to. On September 25th, the police filed charges of first-degree murder against Fisher, but then he disappeared, never to be seen again. Eight days later, he and his lawyer finally came to the Pierce County, Washington Sheriff's Department. He said to the detectives, you've got me now. Then he asked to remain free for the birth of his first child. His request was denied. Eventually, David pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in jail. Phew, now that was a lot to handle. David is a horrible person, and life in prison doesn't begin to pay for his sins. It's good to know he'll never affect this world again while he rots in prison. Now, our fourth case is about a number of killings from 1968 to 1969, known as the Zodiac Killings done by the Zodiac Killer. First attacks and letters. The first known confirmed Zodiac murders took place on December 20, 1968 on Lake Herman Road in California. Victims were David Arthur Faraday, and se- 17 years old, and Betty Lou Jensen, 16, both of which were shot with a t- .22 handgun. The Zodiac then remained inactive until July 4th the following year, when he was shot another couple, Michael McGill, 19, and Geraldine Ferrin, 22. While they were seated in a parked car in the parking lot of Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, Mago survived, though he suffered severe injuries and was a lot was prescribed was and was able to provide a description. On August first, Vallejo Times Chronicle, 
the San Francisco Examiner and the San Francisco Chronicle received a near identical letters from the scene, such as what the victims were wearing, how their bodies were positioned, and what brand of ammunition he used. The only signature was the Zodiac symbol. The letters also contained one part of a three-part cipher designed by the Zodiac, who ordered all three papers to publish the ciphers on their front pages and threatened to go on a killing spree over the weekend if they didn't comply. All three papers published by the cipher, was, which was cracked a little more after a couple of weeks by teachers Donald and Betty Harden, in the decoded message, the Zodiac claimed to have been killing in order to collect slaves for his afterlife. The next Zodiac letter came the day before the cipher was cracked. In it, the Zodiac named himself for the first time and gave more details about the murders. The next murder took place near Lake Bericia on September 27. This time, victims Brian Hartnell, 20, and Cecilia Shepard, 22 were tied up and stabbed instead of being shot. Hartner survived his injuries, but Shepard died two days later. During his next killing, the Zodiac di- diverged from his pattern on October 11 after riding with him. Oh. This time, a partial fingerprint of blood was found inside the car, along with a pair of gloves, which were, however, considered to be too small to fit the Zodiac. At first, the police were led to believe that the killer was black, which was later corrected. Before that, however, a pair of uniformed cops on their way to the crime scene spotted a man fitting the Zodiac's description, dressed in dark jacket, and walking away from the crime scene in mere minutes after the shooting. Three days later, the school bus and an included piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt, one of his victims, though this time, was the last of Zodiac's confirmed killing. He continued writing letters that claimed responsibility for m- several murders during this time. It is generally believed that he lied for attention. One theory suggests that in the Monster the Zodiac Killer podcast is that the other contemporary events got a lot, me- lot of media con- attention, such as the Manson family murders and the Vietnam War. And the Zodiac kept writing in an effort to stay in the public consciousness. Five suspects in this case, at least in the eye of public, was and remains as Arthur Lane Allen. The authorities began investigating him after they were told about one of his, by one of his friends, Donald Shenny, that Allen had told him about an idea he had for a novel about a serial killer who called himself Zodiac, and did several things that the Zodiac killer did or threatened to do, such as taping a flashlight to his gun and killing the passengers of a school bus. This information was more than enough for the police. However, by the time they found out about the Zodiac Killer's identity, he had already offed himself. Now, on to our fifth and final case, John Wayne Gacy, also familiarly known as the Killer Clown. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? Well, Gacy was born on March 17, 1942, and was an American serial killer and sex offender who raped, tortured, and murdered more than 33 young men and boys in Norwood Park Township in Illinois, located in Chicago. 
John got the title of the killer clown because of his often public performances he had where he would portray clowns known as Pogo the Clown and Patches the Clown. Gacy committed all of the murders inside of his ranch-style house located in Norwood Park Township. He would often lure the victims into his house and handcuff the victim and then continue to rape and torture them before killing them by either asphyxiating them or strangling them with a garrote which is an assassination weapon that was used in wars very long ago and was also used in, as an execution device. Gacy buried 26 victims in the crawl space located in his home. Three were buried elsewhere in his house and four were disposed of in the Des Plaines River. Gacy's conviction for 33 murders held the record at the time for the most homicides done by a single individual in United States legal history. He was given the death sentence on March 13, 1980, and was executed by lethal injection at Stateville Correctional Center on May 10, 1994. John's first known murder occurred on January 3, 1972. Gacy was taking a drive to the Civic Center located in The Loop to view the display of ice sculptures. After he finished viewing the ice sculptures, he lured a 16-year-old boy named Timothy Jack McCoy from Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal into his car. Gacy took McCoy on a tour of Chicago and then afterwards drove him to his home with the promise that he could spend the night over and be driven back to the station to catch the bus in the morning. In the morning following Timothy spending the night over at Gacy's house, Gacy claimed that he woke up in the morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom doorway holding one of John's kitchen knives in his hand. He then jumped from his bed as an act of defense and McCoy raised both arms to gesture surrender. He then tilted the knife upwards and accidentally cut Gacy's forearm. Gacy then twisted the knife from McCoy's wrist, banged his head against the wall, kicked him against his wardrobe, McCoy then kicked Gacy in the stomach, then grabbed McCoy and shouted, Mother f-! He then wrestled McCoy to the floor and stabbed him repeatedly in the chest, while also straddling him. As McCoy was laying on the ground dying, Gacy went to the kitchen and, o- and saw an unopened carton of eggs and unsliced bacon on the kitchen table. McCoy had also, been set up for- McCoy had also set up a table for two. He came into the room probably to inform Gacy about what he was doing, while also unconsciously carrying the kitchen knife. In interviews with Gacy, he claimed that after the murder of McCoy, he felt totally drained. Yet, he also said that he was, while he was stabbing McCoy, he experienced a mind-numbing or feeling and stated that that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill. Before before we go, we're going to have our daily guest, the noise, Cypher. Before we go, we're going before we go, we're going to have our daily guest the noise, Cy or Fi quiz and giveaway. Let's do our GPN first. Our last sound was burning lava. I bet you didn't see that one coming. This week's sound will be... Leave your guesses in the comments below. 
Last, Last week's, week's winner was Hannah Votega, and she'll receive $100 in cash. Now, let's go to Syrify, the, the classic game show where I say two true facts and one false. My first story is soil is full of life. There are more microbes in one teaspoon of soil than people on the planet. Millions of species and billions of organisms. Bacteria, algae, microscopic insects, earthworms, beetles, ants, mites, fungi, and more. You name it, there's probably more. Represent the highest concentration of biomass anywhere on the planet, according to the report. My second is water can exist in three states at the same time. This is known as the triple boil or triple point and is the same and it is the temperature and pressure at which material exists as a gas, a liquid, and a solid at the same time. My fi our final story is glass is a high viscosity liquid. <coughs> the story goes that since glass was made from sand and molded and melted, it means that it is a liquid that has high viscosity. This means that from the viscosity, it turned from liquid to solid. The viscosity also accounts for glasses and see-through properties. Again, leave your comments below. Now, onto our weekly lost answers and found questions game show. For our new members of the audience, in this game show, we ask questions about all the criminals featured on the episode of the podcast. Now, let's get to it. Everyone, give it up for our guest, Andrew. Yours, goody guys. Now, Andrew, how are you feeling about this game show today? I don't want to be here. That's great to hear, Andrew. Now, on to our first question. What was John Wayne Gacy's clown Elias's? A. Pogo the clown. B. Patches the clown. C. He didn't have one. Or D. A and B. Or E. All of the above. I'm going to go with F, John. And what's your answer for F, Andrew? Um, B, C, A. Well, folks, is he correct? Drumroll, please. No, he is not. The answer was D, Andrew. Now, for question two, you either have the choice to call a friend or... Nothing else. Oh. Would you like to call a friend? Can I, can I hear the question first? Yes, sir, Andrew. Question two. What was the Zodiac's killer's first known murder? A. December 20th, 1968. B. December 20th, 1978. C. December 30th, 1968. Or D. December 24th, 1966. I would like to call a friend, John. All right, Andrew. Go right ahead. Thank you. Now, Andrew, what's your final what's your final answer? Um A, December 20, 1968. Well, folks. He is correct. Let's go. Now, Andrew, if you get this final question correct, you win the grand prize of, drum roll please, John Wayne Gacy's mustache. 
Question three. Who commits 80% of all sex crimes? A. Relatives and friends. B. Strangers. C. Parents. Or D. Minecraft YouTubers. I'm going to go with all of them, John. Well. Well, Andrew. You did not win the mustache. No! The answer was A. Relatives and friends. And that concludes our final episode for... And that concludes this day's... And that concludes today's game show of lost answers and found questions. So, what have we learned? We have learned about five mysterious crimes or mysteries against humanity. These people are horrid and horrible and disgusting. But it's good to know these things so that you have a better understanding of these types of people so you can avoid them. Big thank you to Audible and you lovely crime enthusiasts. You guys are the knife to my chest. Thank you so much and see you tomorrow where I talk about the most gruesome deaths in history with a special guest, Timothy Shalomu, the cow. He will be mooing his way into our hearts about the gruesome things he has seen in the slaughterhouse. Again, this podcast was made for the intention of spreading awareness and for people who listen to things to sleep. Thank you again, Andre. No problem, Nikan. This is Andre. And this is Nikan, signing signing off. off.